This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 17th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading comes out of 2 Thessalonians, the whole chapter 1. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and the faith in all your persecutions and all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Thank you so much for being here this morning. If you are new, welcome. We go basically verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we just finished 1 Thessalonians. And now we're going to do uh, a really powerful fire hose blast through 2 Thessalonians in three chapters and three sermons, and then we'll move on to Ecclesiastes, which would be wonderfully depressing and glorifying for us all. I hope you can join us. But if you bow with me, I'm going to pray so that God can move me out of the way and say what he needs to say. I didn't mean to rhyme that, but it sounded pretty cool. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your greatness. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your grace. That is why we are here, to worship you. We are not here to think about ourselves. We are not here to dwell on our mistakes. We are not here to celebrate our successes, Lord. We are here to remember. To remember what you have done to make those who were dead alive to bring those who have been dwelling in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by your grace, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. We praise you for doing everything that we could not do for ourselves. We praise you for doing those things that we were unwilling to do because we are rebellious people. But you are a merciful God. And we praise you, Lord, that your mercies, as your word said, are new every single morning. Because I know, Lord, that I need mercy every single morning. So Lord, forgive us where we pretend we are victims. 
For Lord, there's only one true victim. His name is Jesus. And He volunteered to go to that cross for us. So we thank You, Lord. We thank You for what You have done in this church and we especially thank You for the women in this church who are here and those who are not here. Father, they are such an essential part of this body. They play a huge role, in so much so that we have to shift into one service, Lord, without them. Dare I say, we cannot do life or ministry without the women in our lives. And so we praise You for them. Pray that they have had a fruitful time together. Pray that, Lord, they have not just enjoyed one another's company, but they have enjoyed rich fellowship with You. Pray that they will leave that place changed in all the best ways. But Lord, this morning, we are here. Yes, they are absent, but You are not. Your presence is real. And Jesus, I just ask that You will just rock our world this morning. Meet us where we need to be met. Holy Spirit, move me out of the way. Speak the words You need to speak. The words of conviction. The words of comfort. The words of instruction. Ultimately, take us to the cross where we see all of forgiveness and love and justice come together in the same place. Teach us, Lord. Change us, Lord, from the inside out. It's the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So, 2 Thessalonians. Now, as many of you knew, know, um, I used to be an English teacher. I love stories. I don't like reading. That sounds weird. I love stories. I've said many times I like to watch movies with the subtitles on, fast forward just enough to be able to read them and not really hear what they're saying, and then fast forward to the end. You can tell me the ends of stories. I don't care. You can ruin everything for me. I love just the story. What's the story? Tell me the end now. I like it. But as an English teacher, I used to analyze stories with students. Obviously, plots of great stories. Uh, I would study the settings that were established in stories and how they were established. We'd talk about how characters were shaped, how conflicts were resolved. Everyone, I think, really probably likes a good story. We like to hear people tell stories. We even like to create some good stories of our own. And interestingly enough, Jesus taught largely in stories. He taught in parables. And parables are really just small stories with really big meaning. And they weren't just stories about what we're to do, um, but they were stories about really who we are. And that's because Jesus, the Creator of all things, um, kind of wrote a story before the world was ever created. And really the life, the universe, and everything in it uh, is part of God's big story. Now, uh, some will describe God's story as the grand narrative. If you Google that, people talk about the grand narrative, the meta-narrative. But they're just talking about this overarching story or storyline that kind of gives context and meaning and purpose to all of life. It tells us where we came from. It tells us what is right, what is wrong, what is the meaning, why am I here, and where am I headed. So it's a worldview of sorts. So our story of life is the story of Jesus. That is the story of existence. But it's not really a story at all. I like how C.S. Lewis said, he said the story of Christ is simply a True myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference. 
it really happened. Now, there are a few special things about the story of Christ. First, how it's told. It's a story that's really told through incremental revelation over thousands of years, like the longest story ever. And second, while a lot of the details have been revealed, some would argue most have been revealed, there are still some details yet to be revealed. Story's not done. But there's a few things that we do know about this grand narrative. Namely, we do know how the story is structured. And what's unique about the story is that there's a prologue. You know, most books have a prologue. That's probably the part you skip uh, if you're like me. But you know what that means? It's, that's before the Word. Logos. Before the Word. Interesting. A time before the Word. So Jesus' story has this prologue, a time before the Word. has a beginning with the Word or by the Word. It has a middle that has the Word coming in the flesh. And then has the end that comes by the Word. And then there is an epilogue or something that comes after words. So said another way, there's a before life, there's a midlife, there's an afterlife. It's a unique story. One with a beginning and an end and another beginning. Now, the story that we're living now could be described as our first life. And that life will end for everyone the same way with the first death. Newsflash, spoiler alert, everyone here is going to die. Everyone in existence is going to die the first death. But the story of Christ, specifically His resurrection, reveals that there's a second life. And disturbingly, a second death. And this is what 2 Thessalonians is about. This second life and second death. 2 Thessalonians is a little bit of an epilogue from 1 Thessalonians. What happened next in this church that we were studying for the last few or several weeks. But it gives us insight into the great epilogue. That the end that is coming and what happens after that. Now, as many know, the last book of the Bible is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a direct revelation from Jesus to the last living disciple, the Apostle John at the time, who had been exiled to a small island. And it's a revelation about uh, much of history, but specifically the parts that interest us most. It's about the final chapter in God's story. It's about the end of the first life and the beginning of the second. And it's interesting, if you read the book of Revelation, you will see that four different times it describes this thing called second death. In one of the letters at the very beginning of the book to the church in Smyrna, it says this in Revelation chapter 2, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. So these are the words of Jesus. He's writing to His churches. And it says to this particular church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. These are Jesus' words to the church. I think sometimes we struggle suffering because we don't expect it. And Jesus says, get ready, you're about to suffer. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful and you'll be released. That's not what he says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Second death. So it follows if there's a first life and a first death that there's a second life and a second death. So 2 Thessalonians is similar to this letter, the short letter that Jesus wrote to this church, because it's written to a church in a similar circumstance, suffering. It's a letter written to increase the resolution, the resolve in the first life, but also to increase the anticipation for the next. Some of the biggest struggles in our lives come from an inordinate focus on this first life. And not enough of lifting our eyes to the next. So, let's take a look, beginning in verse 1 here. You see, the first letter to the church in Thessalonica was written, as I said several weeks ago, shortly after Paul was kicked out of the city by an angry mob. They chased him out of the city. Months later, he sent Timothy back to check on these new converts and this new church plant And the first letter, 1 Thessalonians, was Paul's response to Timothy's report. came back, he said, this is how it's going, and he writes in response to that report. And in that first letter, if you read how many times he uses the word afflictions, you'll see that he alludes to persecutions and afflictions that the church is enduring. And so Paul is probably still in Corinth, and the letter is received, And he hears some sort of news through some source that things had gotten worse. They hadn't gotten better. Persecution had increased. It hadn't lessened. So in his first letter, he wrote to comfort them about their affliction, to encourage them about this normal Christian life that they were experiencing. And in the second letter, though, Paul is going to lift their eyes and say, let's talk about the life to come. Let's talk about the return of Christ. He's going to focus this letter a lot on the return of Christ. Now, he had already taught a lot about the return of Christ. But if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we'll go through next week, you'll see that false teachers had crept in and they were beginning to say that Jesus had returned. And they had gone so far... Paul writes, to create or circulate a counterfeit letter teaching these things. So it was like, yeah, 
Paul wrote this. And they start circulating these letters. So the church is getting confused because false teachers and false letters are coming in that Jesus has returned. And those who were suffering for Jesus are understandably shaken and alarmed because like, what do you mean Jesus returned? Like, we were left behind? How does, how does that work? And then there are those who are like, end of the world? Cool. We don't need to do anything. And that's when he starts talking about idleness again. Because people are like, well, Jesus returned, the world's ending, why should I do anything? So Paul writes to this church and says, hey, don't forget what I taught you. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, don't you remember what I taught you when I was with you last? So we don't have everything that Paul taught them. It must have been incredible. But he gives us a tremendous amount of details, enough to really kind of freak us out. If you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 next week, you want to be here next week because it's one of those chapters where even the great theologian Augustine said, yeah, I don't even know what Paul's talking about. It's very confusing. But it's also disturbing because it's specific enough to go, I think I know what he's saying, but I don't know what he's saying. But in a world, and we have this world, that is constantly looking for new constantly looking for new revelation and and new doctrines to believe, Paul says, remember what I taught you. He goes back to what is old. Back to what was already revealed about Christ and His church. Now we see the greeting is the same really as 1 Thessalonians with a little bit of a difference. He adds a repetition of this phrase of God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have to be careful not to read too much into a greeting. At the same time, a greeting is inspired and it's there for a purpose. So we also don't want to just skip over it. But he does write to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that the church is in the Father and Jesus And that more is coming from the Father and Jesus. And so the letter, if you will, can be described as a statement of identity and a statement of destiny. This is who you are. This is where you are headed. Those are two truths that I think we all need to know and be reminded of. Who am I? And how does this all end? Where am I going to end up? One of the best questions that I have for those who I'm evangelizing or just talking to about the things of Christ and things of God is like, what do you think happens after you die? Because everyone dies. But not everyone has a good answer to that question. So Paul's going to say, this is who you are right now. Don't forget. And this is where you're headed. Because we need a foundation to stand on and we need a direction to walk. And so... He gives a simple greeting, but then he continues and he begins to thank God. He says, I thank God, and I'm going to paraphrase or at least take pieces out of it in verses 3 and 4. He thanks them because their faith is growing abundantly, he says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing in the midst of suffering. Their faith is growing and their love is increasing as they suffer more and more. Now, in his previous letter, Paul had actually prayed twice for this. 
He prayed that God would establish their hearts. He prayed that their love would increase for one another. I'm not sure he thought this would be the means by which God did it, but that's apparently a prayer that was answered. And what this reveals to us is something that I think is really simple, but super important to remember, and that is that faith grows. When you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you have put your trust into Jesus Christ for your life and for your afterlife, I would love to believe that that moment that happened, faith was perfected. I trust God perfectly in every way, and I will never falter. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that that isn't the case. Faith grows. The Christian Standard Bible translates this verse saying, not that your faith is just growing, but it's flourishing. Which is like a plant, right? We know that faith which begins like a seed and then turns into a little sapling and then grows into a tree, right? It's not a Maybe in the Garden of Eden, that's how it worked. Adam threw down a seed and there was a tree instantly. But today, we put down a seed and we wait. And it grows slowly. But it grows. If faith is about trusting God, if it's about trusting God, trusting Him not just with my afterlife, but with my life, what do you mean? Think of anything. Trusting Him with my job. Trust in Him with how the trajectory of this particular circumstance is going. Trust in Him with my finances. Trust in Him with my relationships. Trust in Him with my parenting. Okay, that's a lifetime of learning to trust. So if, if faith is about trusting God, like any relationship, if God is really a person, if He's just a machine that you put money into or prayers into so you can get the things you want, then you don't understand the God of the Bible. If He's personal, then that trust is going to grow incrementally over time. Now, there are those whom the Bible describes in the church who have the spiritual gift of faith. Did you know that was a spiritual gift? You're like, dang it. Wish I had that one. And these are the kind of people who seem to have very naturally kind of an extraordinary confidence in the promises and the power and the presence of God. And I would argue that it's easy to dismiss these people as Pollyannas. It's easy to dismiss those who have the gift of faith as being you're just not real. There's no way you could trust God that much. Or just you're just too optimistic, foolishly so. I would argue that there are certainly people like that, but those with the gift of faith are given by God as a gift to the church to be an encouragement in our own faith walk as we struggle. And I bet you can name someone who seems to have that gift of faith. But I would say for the rest of us, without that gift of faith, we should still expect our faith to grow. We should still expect it to increase. And insofar as we draw near to God, 
We should expect our intimacy and our trust of God to increase. It's like a marriage, right? As much as I would love to say that when, you know, the day I married my wife, I trusted her and we were fully intimate with one another in every way, perfectly relational. Like, that's just, no. Now we've been married for 24 years and I know her better than I ever have. Trust her more than I ever had. 24 years, though. Some here have been married longer, shorter. Like, it grows over time. As you go through trials and you go through difficulty, you go through joys together. It grows. I would argue the same as with God. But I seem to read or seems to imply by Paul here that um, difficulty is one of the greatest catalyzers for growing that trust. See, Paul has reason to boast to other churches about their faith because it is increasing in the midst of persecutions and affliction. Persecution is a fantastic thing and a horrible thing all at the same time. What persecution does, when it becomes difficult to be a Christian, I don't mean just difficult like, oh, people are giving me a hard time. Like difficult, you could die. Difficult. What happens with persecution is that you are stripped of all other saviors and you are compelled and pushed into the presence of God. Where everything that you could trust gets removed and you can only trust God. That's what persecution does. Suffering and affliction does. Now, here's maybe the disturbing part. That God not only is big enough to uh, make persecution serve as purposes, he actually purposes persecution. Let me, let me prove it to you. In Revelation chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 6, there's a little bit of a disturbing passage that gives some light into this. Beginning in verse 9, there's different seals that are being opened up. At one point, I'll have the courage and strength to go through Revelation and try to explain all that's happening in there, but that will not be today. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, it says, The fifth seal is opened. It says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So we're talking about martyrs. We're talking about those who were killed for their testimony. That's not the disturbing part. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The verse 11 says, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. This is what they're told. Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God said there's a number to still be completed. There's more Christians that will die for their faith. There are Christians that are dying today for their faith. We're very insulated from that in this nation of ours. But it is happening. And the number is coming to an end by God's grace soon. God has and does use persecution to strengthen faith and to grow the church. In fact, some of the strongest, most uh, evil, if you will, persecuting nations and times in our history have seen the greatest growth of the church. What 
The enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. And though it is somewhat ima- unimaginable, I say somewhat, somewhat unimaginable, is that even a word? Unimaginable? It's hard to imagine that we could ever get to a place in the United States of America where that becomes a reality. Don't forget what 2 Timothy 3.12 says. It says, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. As we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 next week, you're going to see that the reality of persecution coming to our front door is becoming more real. I don't know how far off we are from that. I'd be like, no, really? We're going to go there when lawlessness reigns. Those who stand on the truth of Christ will suffer most. But this persecution is not just going to build our faith. It's going to build our love for one another. It's amazing. It says, oh, their faith is building and then their love for one another. Like, how does that happen? Because they bind together. More than just an affectionate community you hang out together because they enjoy one another, persecution has the power to create this thing called communitas. And communitas is when a community is created and formed as a result of a difficult ordeal or challenge. And in a really silly way, you see it on like, like the old shows like Survivor, of which I did apply a couple times, just so you know. Back in the day, the chapter I'll... But those people like do this horrible experience. They're all doing it for money, for fame, whatever. When it first started, it was a little more raw. It wasn't as, as big as it is now, perhaps. But like, what happened, though, after those people spent that much time together, suffering together, like, became like best friends. Like, what is going on? Why are you guys like best friends? Because they suffered horribly together. If you've been part of sports teams that did really difficult and yet successful things together, man, you just build bonds with one another. They're strong. And the same goes with the persecuted church. And these are issues of life and death. And so the church, in its persecution, in some ways, I almost welcome it because it winnows out those who truly are of Christ and increases and bonds the church together in the most powerful way that makes you unstoppable. What happens is friends become brothers, brothers become teammates, teammates become these guerrilla fighters who are fighting for the Lord. It's beautiful. So, Paul's like, I'm thanking God that persecutions have come. Your faith is increasing and love is increasing. It's awesome. And then he gives them some assurance in verse 5 through 10. He assures them that their experience is what? He says it's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when King Jesus is revealed from heaven. So imagine if you can being persecuted in the way that they are not just on Facebook and being made fun of. Not just being, you know, having a hardship at work because you stood for Christ, though that can be considered certainly persecution, but actually being killed, having loved ones killed, 
hiding and gathering under fear of arrest and death. And Paul writes, Jesus is coming. And He's going to afflict those who are afflicting you. It's not how we typically talk about Jesus. But it says the second life that he's talking about, right, begins with Jesus' return. And Jesus is not returning or arriving like he did the first time. He's not coming as the gentle carpenter. He is coming as the one, not who will die for his people, but the righteous judge who's going to vindicate his people. You see, right now, the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus for His people. The wrath of God, all that is the wrath of God, was poured out on His Son for those who put their faith in Him. But there remains a wrath to come. There's a wrath to come for those who are not His people because they have not put their faith in the blood of Jesus to atone for their sin. The Bible says very plainly that the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. We are either made right by trusting in Jesus' life, substitute us for us as a gift, or God's going to make things right by demanding your life for your sin. What's it going to be? He's going to come, the righteous judge. And He's going to come to punish unbelievers with a second death and reward those who believe with a second life. So He does come to punish. And we have to talk about this. It's interesting that the world attempts to pit the wrathful Father of the Old Testament against the loving Son of the New Testament. But the one true God who is the Father, is the Son, and is the Holy Spirit is both holy and loving. He is both just and merciful. This is how God described Himself in the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, when Moses says, show me your glory. He goes, I'll show you. And he shoves him in the cleft of a rock and walks by him and he declares his own name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God. Slow to anger, not no to anger. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we love that part and we forget the rest. Who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let us not forget that the Father has given Jesus the authority to judge the world. And He is coming as a righteous judge. He will return, it says in 2 Thessalonians here, with His mighty angels. So He's not coming back with His fluffy angels, right? His floaty, fluffy, fun angels. He's coming back with His army. And if it wasn't clear enough, in flaming fire, Right? To inflict vengeance, it says, on two different kinds of people. 
He says in verse 8, those who do not know God, there's one, and those who do not obey the Gospel of Jesus, aren't they the same? No. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Gospel of Jesus. So, those who are not His people fall into two categories. The irreligious and the religious. The irreligious unbelievers and the religious unbelievers. Matthew chapter 7 has one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture of Jesus Himself talking about people coming to Him at the end as He's judging and saying, Jesus, we did all these things in Your name. We did miracles. People were saved. And He's like, I never knew You away from me into wickedness. Never knew You. Those could definitely be described as what have the appearance of religious people who didn't know God. You see, the irreligious avoid God by being really bad and the religious avoid God by being really good. One gives himself to self-indulgence and one gives himself to self-righteousness. One makes idols out of creation and saviors ultimately to try and save them and one makes a savior out of themselves and thinks they can earn their salvation. Both of them will be punished by God. And Jesus and Paul says the verdict will be swift and it will be dark. Did you notice what Paul said here in this passage? He said, Paul says that those who do not know God and do not believe or obey the gospel of Jesus will suffer eternal destruction. That's not annihilation. And again, that's disturbing to think about until you understand the holiness of God. An eternal separation from God. There are many people who want to reject Paul's writings for these kinds of statements. They'll, ah, oh, that's why I don't like Paul. That's why we don't read Paul. He, he says such mean things. Let's just listen to gentle Jesus. Well, don't forget that gentle Jesus taught more about hell than anybody as a consequence of God's judgment. More than anybody. And as he taught it, what did he say? Come to me. Believe in me. Put your trust in me. This is a reality. This is going to happen. So the righteous judge is coming to punish, but Paul also says the righteous judge is coming to reward. He says, look, there's going to be a day of reckoning for those who are responsible for your suffering, Thessalonians. And did you know, think about this, just let this sit in your mind for a little bit. It's so tempting when people hurt us to want to hurt them. And the depth of that hurt increases the desire. But what does God say more times than I can count? Vengeance is mine. Did you realize that one's belief in a final vindication, one belief in a final judgment is the reason why Christians can rest without taking vengeance and law into their own hands? If you believe that, there's a day coming. God sees it. He is accounting for it. He will punish it. I don't have to take care of it myself. 
But God does punish the guilty, but He says He rewards those who have what? Who have believed the testimony of the apostles. What's the testimony of the apostles? It's the Gospel of Jesus. That the Son of God has taken on human flesh and came and died the death that you deserve and lived the life that you should have lived but couldn't sinlessly perfectly and gives you His righteousness if you believe in His resurrection. That's the Gospel, the testimony that Jesus really lived, Jesus really died, Jesus really rose from the dead. It's not, make sure you do all these religious things. It's not, make sure you have all this Bible knowledge. It's not, make sure you do X, Y, Z. It's believe. Those who believe the testimony are saved. Paul also tells the Thessalonians that their persecution is what? Evidence that they're going to be counted worthy of God's kingdom. Right? Their, their very real, tangible affliction is actually proof of their genuine conviction and belief. It's interesting, as I was just reading through my Bible reading plan this week, I came across Philippians chapter 1. This is known as the book of joy. And in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 28, Paul writes this, Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should only believe in Him but also suffer for Him. It's been granted that you should suffer. And it's a sign of their destruction and your salvation. That's what Paul says here. He returns to relieve the sufferings of His people and reward them for their faith with a second life. He says the second death ain't going to touch you. There's an eternal destruction and there's an eternal life, right? These are antithetical. There's an eternal separation and it means there's an eternal relationship. So we learn a lot about the second life. And so let me just very quickly give you three basic things so you understand, especially as false teaching comes about or your own mind goes, I wonder this. So let me just give you some things to kind of put your teeth on. Number one, the second life can begin any second. The testimony of the New Testament is really clear. The writers employ phrases like, the end is near, the day is approaching, here it comes. We don't live like that. We live as if we have time. And there are various theologies that say, well, here are the 17 things that need to happen before Jesus, so ultimately we got time. James 5, he writes this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your, Lord, your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And know what he says? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. For behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge, Jesus, is standing at the door. I'm not sure we live like that. Certainly not unbelievers, but I wonder sometimes of those who believe even. So the second life can happen any second. I'm convinced of that. If it happened right now, 
be awesome. But the other thing that might be a little bit disturbing and also inspiring, the second life is not a second chance. The second life is not a second chance. The Bible is clear. The return of Christ does not initiate a new and final purification. All the bad you've done, now you can start working it off. There are theologies that believe that. The second life is not a second chance. The return of Christ brings a final verdict from a righteous judge. Hebrews 9 says it very clearly. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time and to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The verdict for those who are not found in Christ is not a second life. It is the eternal destruction that comes with second death. It's not a second chance. And you have many people teaching that today. False teachers teaching universalism. Like, oh, you die, and you just kind of, you know, Jesus, His grace figures it all out. Or you die, and you start working your way back to, you know, make amends for your unrighteous deeds. That is not true. It's not a second chance. And the third thing that I want to share with you about the second life is that it's second to none. Second to none. Paul talks about it when he's in his first life, right? He says in Philippians 1, for me to to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart be with Christ, for that's better. And the older I get, just turned 45, not that old, I realize that. Old enough for me to go, man, it'd be better be with Jesus. And I think I think that even stronger every day I'm alive on this earth. My desire is to be with Jesus for it be far better. The book of Hebrews speaks of the faithful saints longing for a better country. The faithful saints he refers to in Hebrews chapter 11 all died, suffered for their faith. Second life is not an improved life. It's an entirely new one, free from the presence of sin, dwelling in the perfection of God without tears, without brokenness, without rebellion, in all glory, immersed in the love of God. Whatever you imagine, like you imagine we all kind of play imaginary games about heaven. It's going to be fields. I'm going to be fishing all day. I'm going to like climb mountains. I'm going to like be sowing. Whatever it is, it's way better than what you can imagine. When you imagine a heaven where their building materials are the things that we value, right? Like gold streets. Like we're putting gold around the necks. God's using that for asphalt, right? It is far better than you can possibly imagine. It's second to none. Well, Paul ends this particular chapter with a prayer. And he says, and prays that God will make them worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name, verse 12, of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. So Paul's prayer is that God will empower them to persevere to the end. 
God saved you. God is saving you. And by His grace, He will save you and complete the good work that He began. And the purpose, he says, of this perseverance is twofold. That God will be glorified in His people and His people will be glorified in Him. What an interesting phrase. That God will be glorified in His people and His people will be glorified in Him. Several translations, including some of the paraphrases like the New Living Translation, stated it this way, I liked it. Said everyone will be praising the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because the results they see in you and your greatest glory will be that you belong to Him. Your greatest glory will be that you belong to Him. And the question is, well, how will I know that I belong to Him? Because He will tell you. After our first life has ended, Lord Jesus will welcome us into the second life with the greatest words that we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Some of us go, I I don't know if I'm going to make it. Well, Paul says God's going to make sure He makes it for you. He's going to make sure you make it. That it's perseverance, your perseverance, isn't even dependent upon your own awesome faith, but dependent upon God's commitment to you. But the goal is that the name of Jesus and all that represent Him will be glorified in us and by us by what we say and what we think and what we do. And in the end, I believe as the Scriptures teach that being glorified with Him in many ways means glorified by Him. What do I mean by that? Well, I'd like to just conclude with a story to kind of bring this to mind as you think about the second life. Because you hear a lot of stuff about judgment and all this bad stuff. And it's gonna. But for those who in Christ have no fear of that, you have only the joy of your Master to look forward to. And I realize as we go through life and we go, man, I just feel like I'm stumbling my way through life feel like I'm, I'm making mistakes and not trusting God. Like, I get it. I get it. But listen to this story. Now, I don't typically read books like this. I read really boring books that you would not enjoy. But every now and then, I need some, what I'll call fluff. It's kind of like watching a lot of documentaries. And then every now and then, you need like a John Hughes 80s film and just watch that and enjoy it and move back to documentaries, Okay. Some of you know what I meant by that. Others are totally lost. Now, I want to conclude with this story because I want it to help us, like the Thessalonians, look forward to the end. So author and speaker, and I think he's a lawyer, a guy named Bob Goff, he has a story in a, in a New York Times bestseller he wrote called uh, Love Does. Yeah, it sounds fluffy. It is. Cameron was reading it. I thought, I'll read it. I need some fluff. But he tells the story of how he and a friend decided that they were going to sail across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii. He's like, let's just do this. He's kind of like that. He did some crazy stuff. So since 1906, there's been this race from Los Angeles to Hawaii called the Trans-Pac Race. And usually for safety reasons, they only allow boats that are 45 feet or longer. I've tried to talk my dad into doing it. He's got like a 37 foot. and He's like, nah, not going to do it. If we do it, we'll sail there and someone else will sail it back because I'm not going to sail that back. It's easier that way than it is this way. But this particular year, they allowed smaller boats. And so 
they had a 35-foot sailboat. They thought, let's do it. Now, the plan was simple. They're going to sail. Um, it's something like 2,600 or 20, it must be 2,600 miles across the ocean what he, in what he described as a Vita bus-sized space going about seven miles per hour, right? So you can imagine that journey. And it's not like you see like, oh, look at the land. It's like just water, nothing. And they had originally planned for six guys to go on this trip, one of whom was a navigator for a U.S. Navy destroyer. He had to bail out the last minute. And no one else knew how to navigate. So Bob Goff was like, I guess I'll have a crash course in navigation. So he did, and they, quote, did their best. Needless to say, it took a long time for them to finish. It was hard. They had some crazy tales in between. But he writes about, as they come to the end, there's a tradition at this race where no matter when you finish, even if it's two in the morning, a man with a booming voice on a huge loudspeaker welcomes each person home. And this is his own words. He said, as a few hours before dawn, it had been 16 days since we set out from Los Angeles in our little boat, knowing very little about navigation. Suddenly, the silence was broken by a booming voice over a loudspeaker announcing the name of our tiny boat. Somewhat, he said, the way he said it, it sounded like we were the size of an aircraft carrier. And they started announcing the names of a ragtag crew like he was introducing the heads of state. And one by one, he announced our names with obvious pride in his voice, and it became a really emotional moment for everyone on board. And when he came to my name, he didn't talk about how few navigation skills I had for the zigzag course or I had led us on to get there. He didn't tell everyone I didn't even know which way north was or about all my other mess-ups. Instead, he just welcomed me in from the adventure like a proud father would. And when he was done, there was a pause and then a sincere voice. His last words to the entire crew were these, Friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. Man, I get choked up every time I read this. It's because the way he said it, he says, we all welled up and fought back tears. And I wiped my eyes as I reflected on the moment about all the uncertainty that had come with the journey and all the sloppy sailing and how little I knew, but none of that mattered now because we had completed the race. And he said, I've always kind of thought that heaven might be kind of a similar experience. What a beautiful picture as we look towards that second life and you think of all the pain and the persecution, the mistakes, and when you arrive there, the Lord's like, yeah! Welcome home! Like, but what about welcome home? You complete the race. And that's where we keep our eyes on. And so as we go into next week, you'll see there's a lot of darkness, a lot of like, what is this? But if you keep your eyes up, on the second life to come, I believe it'll make this first life a lot more enjoyable to go through. Let's pray.